begin with the end in mind. So the more clear the client is, I guess you could say, or the, the investor is on where they're going, the more far out you can see on how to structure certain things yeah. uh, to make sure that when that time comes, they've done what they had to do today, or at least as much as they could today yeah. to prepare for, for that future. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, I'm going to be talking about the topic that uh, is very dear to my heart. And uh, for those of you listening to this show, they know it. I'm a tax geek. I think I'm probably one of the very few ones without having the three-letter uh, name out, uh, behind my name, a CPA. I probably have written read 80% of the tax code. Um, now, it may, have, it, may have been, it may have been old now, so I can't say that I understand today's tax code, but I really, really, really wanted to understand taxes. And uh, my nerd gene kicked in. I'm like, you know what? The best thing is, let me just read through it. Uh, it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, but hey, at least I can check the box. Like climbing, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, I've read the tax code. That's why I brought, I'm bringing to you today an industry leader here, especially for those who, do, who does real estate. Right? And you'll see why we're talking about that. Thomas Castelli, he is a partner at Hall CPA firm. And uh, our paths have crossed multiple times, several conferences. Their, their company has been their presence has been only expanded. I didn't realize until I was talking to Thomas, they're actually based out in, or the founder, initial founder is based out in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I am. So we're definitely grabbing a coffee in the next few weeks here um, because I cannot not meet Brandon, especially if he's here. So uh, with that thought, with that, with that background, what I want you to pay attention today in today's episode is really around where we're recording this on December 12th and hopefully I can release it before the end of the year. Uh, we'll see if we can. But what I want, regardless of the release of the year, what really what you want to pay attention to this is the planning for the current tax year starts to happen in the current year, right? Yeah. It does not. You cannot plan for saving taxes for 2023 in 2024. There may be a few things that someone like Thomas can help you, uh, but, but what I want you to pay attention is what does plan looks like? What are various elements of that planning? And how, what does an aggressive plan versus a non-aggressive plan looks like? So as we're having a conversation with Thomas, we're not going to discuss any personal personal taxes. Um, neither mine, not Thomas's, not anybody else's. We're going to talk in generalities, right? Just so that, and as you as you start to connect dots, so at the end of the episode, we'll share uh, Thomas's information that you can connect with Thomas and his team. Uh, Thomas is going to be getting folded into our, our preferred uh, CPA as well. So we're going to be going to have that relationship discussion after the episode. So you'll have access to Thomas. So don't worry about it. But right now, keep an open mind in understanding everything to make sure that you can connect the dots for yourself and then use Thomas and his team's help to basically push you forward. Uh, with that with that said, Thomas, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's uh, great to be here today. Awesome, man. Thomas, let's open it up, let's open it up man. Uh, and, and through your story, your introduction will unfold. Before we actually talk about you, I want to talk about when you heard the term migrate to wealth, and as you think about it, what does it really mean to you? Yeah, so migrate to wealth, when I think of that, that term, I think about uh, transition or transformation from perhaps not being wealthy into becoming wealthy. And for me, that means taking income that you might be generating and pouring it into assets that presumably are going to be appreciating and that you can use to generate cash flow 
and perhaps as they're appreciating, be able to tap into those assets you know, using leverage to pull cash out, perhaps to even continue building your portfolio. That's kind of what initially came to mind. Yeah, love that. Love that, Thomas. So tell us your migration into wealth journey. Where it got started, you you were four year old. You want always wanted to be a CPA. I'm assuming that's how it all started. Tell me, tell me not, please. Uh, well, maybe you do. Yeah. So uh, I I grew up in a lower middle class family. Is what I would probably say. And I've been since I was five years old. I've always been saying I wanted to be in business. Uh, I can't mm-hmm. say that being an accountant was necessarily my dream, but uh, being business certainly was. Um, and then as I was kind of growing up in my teen years, I started going out and figuring out ways to make money. So uh, I did things like washing cars fixing computers. Me and my friends, we did, you know, snow shoveling and really like just take it upon ourselves to figure out how can we generate money. And uh, from there, as it kind of went through my teen years, I actually wanted to just go full blown into entrepreneurship and be be in business. And uh, basically between my parents, my friends, my my, uh, teachers and so on and so forth, they all like pretty much convinced me that college was the way to go. So I went ahead and went to school uh, for accounting ultimately. And uh, during that, uh, during I think it was my sophomore year, maybe I picked up the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad and uh, started reading that. And I know it's an entryway for a lot of people yeah. in the field of real estate. And uh, that book kind of set me off like the rabbit hole goes pretty deep from there in terms of uh, my education into real estate. And then I started going to events and I met this group who was doing a real estate syndication. And they were doing like a three-day weekend on the entire process of syndication. So that was uh, that's actually the year I graduated college. And I was about to start an internship at a, at a top accounting firm. And I was like, before I jump into this full, well, not internship, start my first full-time job, excuse me. And I was like, before I go full-time into this, let me go to this three-day weekend. So I went to the three-day weekend. I fell in love with the syndication business model um, and started going to their regular monthly meetings and eventually met somebody who would become my mentor. And uh, I jumped into a few deals with him as a limited partner. And then he said to me, hey, Tom, look, if you find a deal, we'll syndicate the deal. Mm-hmm. So I started hitting the phones, building relationships with brokers. And you know, long story short, uh, I found a deal and we ended up syndicating it. Uh, so that's kind of how I got into real estate investing. And then like along that same path, uh, along that same timeline, I ended up here at, at Hall CPA where we work like we work primarily with real estate investors at this point, and uh, it's it's been a, f- a fantastic blend of both the accounting background and the the real estate the passion for real estate investing. So that's kind of how my story came together. And now today, I work with real estate investors across the nation to help them reduce taxes. And then uh, right now, I'm specifically investing as a limited partner to uh, basically so I could spend my time at the CPA firm handling this. And then later on, Absolutely. at some point down the line. I don't know when I'll go back active. I, I love that story, Thomas. I think this is, uh, and tons of questions in it, but let me just paint a broad picture of what I understood. I think what I really liked about your story is you're not the CPA who's sitting behind the desk and saying that, do this, do this, do that. You actually traversed an investor's journey starting out to being a syndicator to being a syndicator. So you've been also in the general partner shoes where you understand the importance of K-1s out to your house because they're breathing down your neck it's come April, February 1st. I had a very interesting story, and you may, you may or may not appreciate that I had an investor call me on February 15th. 
He's like, Sagat, where's my K1? I'm like, you know, K1's going to come when it's going to come, buddy. I'm like, it's going to come. Maybe, maybe April 1st. He's like, Sagat, I've always filed my taxes on February 7th. I'm yeah. Like, so what, what does that mean? He's like, I'm, yeah, what is that? I'm not, I'm not going to miss that deadline. I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. I almost laughed at it, but then I'm like, what did you just say? That yeah. you always, that's not something I even thought about when he was doing syndications. I'm like, why would somebody stick to that deadline? I think it's because people people stick to things differently. People, people, it's very habitual for a lot of people. And a lot of people, you know, the IRS, the government gives them a deadline. They feel like they have to stick to it. Um, and you know, we've we we get that a lot in uh, in this world of syndications because a lot of people who jump in as a limited partner uh, typically are used to you know investing in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, yeah. index funds, and they get their you know their 1099Bs and and all those documents at the tail end of January and they're ready to go file their tax returns. Now if somebody jump into the world of real estate syndication or even real estate in general in some cases and they get these K1s that they have to deal with and they're a little taken back by the fact that the K1s may not come until March 15th or sometimes much later. I mean, yeah. there's been years where I've been waiting until like September. Oh, look at September. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's commonplace actually in this world. It's not too, it's not uncommon. Some people are, you know, get very used to, in fact, I've been uh, extending my tax returns since like 2014. So it's, um, it's, it's been, it's very common. I think now I have a habit. I won't file. I won't, I won't even think about tax unless I have to, unless I will, which I rarely do. I'm not even thinking about the taxes until October 15th. It's automatically uh, extended. But Tom, before we, Thomas, before we go into that, let's talk about one thing. When you were looking at the syndication or starting your first job, what about syndication caught to your attention or caught your uh, interest? Um, and why did you want to, why did you not want to wait? Because a lot of people, and the reason, let me give the context of that question, is a lot of people will say that, well, let me just do the first year of job. Let me get the hang of it. And then let me try this, and then I'll open myself up to that, which sometimes never happens uh, unless they get unless something life event life event happens to them. What what made you go a different route? Yeah, I think it was a a number a number of things. I think the first thing was like the actual business model of syndication, raising capital, uh, adding value to assets, and uh, really building wealth. I think that part was a big uh, component of it. But also, it was like I really wanted to be in business. I didn't candidly, I didn't, I didn't. It, being an accountant wasn't my dream, right? Being in business was. So I felt like when I when I looked at that opportunity, I was like, this is really what I want to do. And I kind of gravitated towards it. And, you know, being younger, you know, I was, uh, you know, in my 20s at the time, I just like, it was very ambitious, didn't really know, didn't really know left from right in, in some ways. So I just said, you know, what, I'm going to jump on this opportunity while it's in front of me. And I think uh, that's, that's what that's what sparked it for me. Got it. I love that. Thomas, let's jump into the nitty gritties of taxes, man. And before we go to taxes, I think there's, I want to separate uh, clearly, uh, demarcate the difference between tax planning and tax filing. Right. But can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, start with tax preparation. I think it's what everybody's familiar with. So when you file your tax returns, you're, it's basically a report card, if you will, of the activities that you've you, you participated in the year before. So the income, expenses, deductions, uh, credits, so on and so forth from, from, from what you did last year, right? That's what it is. And it just gets reported on your tax return and uh, that it gets sent to the government. 
Meanwhile, whereas tax strategy is looking at your situation, looking at what activities you have going on and saying, well, based on what you have going on, real estate, you know, your job or business, what have you, here are the various strategies and tactics that you can use and do throughout the year so that you can influence your tax position when it comes time to filing your tax return. So whereas tax preparation and filing is just a, it's just a report card, it's what you actually do throughout the year that influences that report card and that's where tax strategy and planning comes in it's looking at that it's and it, it, it's something to 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 point out here is it's usually a proactive thing like you mentioned before at the beginning of the show once the year kind of closes out there are some things you can do to impact your tax situation from that prior year however for the most part that year's closed the book is done you have to yeah. really go you ever have to start proactively looking at what you can do I, I think that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Tax plan, tax preparation is looking back. And looking right. back, there's very few things you can do. But tax planning is looking forward. And I would, um, and I would venture out to go, uh, I don't know if that's true or not. You, you'll, you'll tell me if, that's, if, that, if I'm making a mistake in saying that. Sometimes tax planning is not just for one year ahead. It's for five years, two years, 10 years ahead. Because right. uh, there's a lot of different things that are happening, a lot of different lives like there's one person that i'm helping right now in 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 helping them to find their strategy they're thinking of selling the business right yeah and it's a multi-year process to make sure that everything is set up correctly everything is structured appropriately the entity structures are correct of course the books and everything has to be right that's a different thing but how does that how that how does that exit not only financially impact them but also psychologically right you want to you want to make sure they're ready for that exit because most people after they exit goes to ident- they go to identity crisis. So that right. dream that they have built, now that now that dream they've achieved it, but they don't have anything else to look forward to next. So kind of helping them through the entire thing. A lot of that is part of the planning and the strategy sessions. So Tom, right. uh, Thomas, when you work with people, which I'm, I, it's a leading question. Uh, which part do you heavily bend towards? Tax preparation, tax planning. You do you split them fifty fifty? What kind of how do you work with people? Yeah, so um, in my where where I started at, at the firm, I started doing uh, tax planning. I was a tax advisor, so I'd work with people almost exclusively um, on the planning aspect. So uh, I would meet with them over a series of calls, really get uh, an understanding of their situation, what they have going on today. Uh, from a tax and financial perspective, as well as really what their goals are, uh, not only for the long term, but yeah. in, in the shorter term too as well. And then from there, we'd outline a tax a tax plan with them that included a number of strategies and tactics and things that they could do uh, throughout the next handful of years to influence their tax returns over the short term. And also, uh, like you kind of mentioned before, uh, we are, I am a big believer of Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind. So the more clear the client is, I guess you could say, or the, the investor is on where they're going, the more far out you can see on how to structure certain things yeah. uh, to make sure that when that time comes, they're, they've done what they had to do today, or at least as much as they could today to prepare for, for that future. So. Uh, I definitely worked more on the tax planning side for sure. Um, having said that, we do have people who file the tax returns. We really found that it's it's really almost two different skill sets at the end of the day, the forward-looking planning and then the the actual tax preparation itself. Two, you know, two two different kind of things. But yeah, I was definitely more on the planning side. Got it. So so let's let's work the planning at for a second. I think I wanna help help people break down a few things so that they can they can walk away with something actionable. 
is every type, of, and a lot of these answers I know, but I'm, I'm going to ask you as a question that then we can go back and forth with that, that uh, when we look at income, that uh, let's say I'm coming to you and I said that I have income from real estate, I have income from W-2, I have income from an active business, I have income from stock market, I have some capital gains, all of that. So when you look at the tax planning, how you're bucketizing that information? Because each of these type of income source has mm-hmm. is treated differently from right. the IRS's perspective, right? So from and and also from the asset protection and everything else perspective. But let's fo- let's focus on the IRS that the, the taxes for now. How do you lick them differently? Do you bucketize them differently? Is there a bucket that you put them in? Yeah, I mean, there's there's really maybe two or three different buckets, and it depends on how you want to look at it. So under the tax code, there's really two there's really two big buckets. You have passive income and non-passive income. And I guess you could even, but if you wanted to put into three buckets, you have earned income, that's maybe income from a job or a business. Then you have portfolio income, that's income from stocks, bonds, mutual funds, dividends, things like that. And then you have the passive income bucket, which is the rental income or maybe uh, interest in businesses that you own that you're not like limited partnership interests that you're not actively involved in. Um, but really from uh, from a large perspective, it comes down to, at least for, for us in real estate, is are, do you have, you have non-passive income or passive income? And one of the things that, uh, and this is an important distinction because passive, because real estate tends to generate passive losses, which are uh, only on paper. So for example, uh, there's an expense called depreciation, which is what we call a phantom expense because it reduces your taxable income uh, for tax purposes, but not necessarily your cash flow. So you might end up telling the, the IRS, hey, we have a loss on our rental portfolio, despite the fact that you might have actually generated positive cash flow. And that's usually in the passive bucket. And there's some ways to put that in the, in the non-passive bucket we could t- talk about, but uh, that's usually in the passive bucket. And then you have your non-passive income. Your non-passive income includes income from an active business that you're involved in, uh, that you may be running or you're a part of. Uh, for example, consulting, or maybe you're a real estate agent, or maybe you know you, you run a marketing firm, so on and so forth. And then also from a job that you might have. So it's really those two buckets. And believe it or not, dividends and capital gains from stocks and 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 so on and so forth. That's actually in the non-passive bucket. Uh, it's kind of it's counterintuitive because you would think like you know if I put hundred if I put you know I don't know ten thousand dollars in Meta you know Facebook and it goes to the moon. Well, I didn't do anything. I clicked a few buttons in the mouse. How is that not passive? Well, the tax code just puts it under the non-passive bucket. So. A lot of our, and I don't say a lot, but a good portion of planning is how do you get the losses from the passive bucket into the non-passive bucket? Because the losses in the passive bucket can't offset your non-passive income. And so you, what ends up happening is you have investors who have a lot of income in the non-passive bucket and a lot of losses in the passive bucket, but they can't use the passive losses to offset the non-passive income. So uh, there are ways around that. And that's a, a big part of what we do. But it's also planning around, okay, well, if you have these two buckets, even if you can't turn the not the passive losses, not passive, what can you do to optimize both buckets? Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. So, so let me just kind of recapture that because I think we have not heard that classification before. We have heard passive earned income and portfolio income, which is pretty standard. Um, so let's talk about, I think I think your, your, your end goal again there is to, to minimize the losses through passive losses. We minimize taxes through passive losses. And and why is that? Um, and let's go deeper into that. And you tell me if I'm saying it right or not. The reason why we want to focus on passive losses is because real estate is probably one of the biggest asset class 
which produces the amount of depreciation without the property being depreciated. Chances are you bought a $2 million building, even though you're fully depreciated, you can still sell it for 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars if the market right. is on the plane. But if that, which the reverse is not true, if you bought a business equipment and you right. depreciated it fully, it has lost its complete value, right? So, so real estate is very different in that regards. You can, if, I, if you may have fully depreciated the building and I buy it from you, I can restart the depreciation again. So real estate is that, and all of that is classified as a passive loss. And the reason why it's important is because your $100,000 or $50,000, let's say $100,000 for now, if it gives you $80,000 depreciation, now these numbers could vary, just making it up right now, that $80,000 of loss you want to use towards minimizing your taxes. Is that the goal of why we want to do the passive and non-passive bucket? Yeah. So the goal, the goal is you want, yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. The go, you, you want to be able to take those passive losses and move them into the non-passive bucket. That's ultimately, that's ultimately ideally what you want to achieve at the end, yeah. because that's going to allow you to save a tremendous amount of money in taxes and also grow your wealth thanks to the time value of money. So, so let's talk about the other, other dimension there as well, Thomas, is that of course you want to have, figure out a way to move your passive losses to the non-passive bucket. But also there may be a strategy where you want to move some of your non-passive income and how to figure out to make it passive. Is the reverse also true? Yeah, there's there's ways to do that too. Perfect. So what, what I, and again, we will not talk about anything specific here because we can't. And I, I, I forgot to put a disclaimer out. On my show, I always have a disclaimer. But Thomas and I, Thomas is definitely a CPA. I'm not even a CPA. So the conversation we're having is really only for education purposes. Please take a look at take a look at with that from that from education, and work with Thomas or work with your advisor, whoever you want to find one. That's perfectly fine. But use these concepts as just for education. We're not telling you what to do. We're not saying figure out a way to move from passive non passive. It doesn't work for you. You have to really work with a professional to make sure these make sense. So with that said, Thomas, let's talk about a little few strategies where you can move from move the passive losses into the non-passive bucket. And then we'll also talk about the reverse where some strategies where you can move some of the non-passive income and make it passive. Yeah. So moving the non-passive income and make it passive, that's primarily on businesses, right? So you're typically not going to be able to do that if you have a job that's not going to be possible at least to my knowledge yeah. if somebody has a way please let me know but um <laughs> okay, yeah. basically and, and that's because there's something called uh material participation and that's under four section 469 of the task code which is where you'll find the passive activity loss rules and it says that if you have a business that you do not materially participate in then it's in the passive bucket Got but it. if you do materially participate in that business then it's in the non-passive bucket and what you end up seeing is that for most people, most businesses require the founder, the owner, uh, most businesses, not all, uh, to do a substantial amount of work. And that will, in my experience, most of the time, put you in that non-passive bucket. Now, uh, the way the material participation rules work is, let me give you some examples. There's seven tests. Mm -hmm. and if you meet these tests, it's non-passive. If you don't meet these tests, it's going to be passive. And all you have to do is meet one to make it non-passive. Sure. So the first one is you spend more than 500 hours on the activity for the year. So if you spend more than 500 hours on your business for the year, it's non-passive. So uh, check that box off. If it, the other ones, you do substantially everything yourself. So if you're like a consultant or you're like a real estate agent, uh, something along those lines, chances are you're going to fit into that bucket, into that test. 
The next one is you spend more than 100 hours on the activity and no one else spends more time than you. So that's that's another. So these are pretty low thresholds, right, to make it non-passive. Yeah. And then there's, there's some more. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them for the sake of yeah. uh, brevity here, but there's some uh, there's some more obscure ones where if you work in the business for three out of the last I think it's five out of the last ten years if I'm not mistaken but that if you, then it's going to be considered non-passive even if you don't work it, even if you don't meet one of the other tests in that mm-hmm. year so the way these rules the reason why those rules were and the way it was is to stop you say from starting a business it took you five years to build the business and now your business is screaming you delegated it all you have see you have your entire team running it for you now you step out and so you go haunted by yeah now it's not passive for you so uh, basically when we're trying to plan for somebody to make a uh, non-passive income uh, passive the earlier you start the better because kind of like what you're going back and what we were talking about before starting with the end in mind if you know that you want that business to eventually be passive for you, that stream of income to be passive, and you're the one starting it, well, uh, and well, I've seen this happen before. Can you start building the business from day one where you're maybe running the show, but you're not meeting any of those tests from day one? So you're yeah. never materially participating. You're never. It's never not passive to begin with. That's possible. It's easier said than done, but it's possible. And secondly, if you are going to have to take a significant lift and put a significant amount of time and effort into building that business, can you make sure you do it in less time, right? So yeah. you don't trip up those those rules that will make it non-passive even when you stop working. So that's pretty much how you do that. And uh, that can be highly lucrative if you can do that because now you have a business that's presumably generating a tremendous amount of cash flow yeah. in the passive bucket. And now you can go buy a bunch of real estate, which is passive as well but generates these non-paper losses, yeah. these non-cash losses that now you can offset the other passive income and it's extremely tax efficient. Yeah, and, and uh, Thomas, I want to talk about one thing there is that it just struck me. It all makes sense to me, right? That, of course, if you're W-2, chances are your W-2 is going to stay as a non-passive yeah. bucket because uh, there's a reason why somebody's paying your salary, that they're expecting you to maturely participate. Chances are they won't. Right? So that's different. But if you have businesses... Even if you have an existing business, there are ways to figure out, you may not get there right away, but if you work with someone like Thomas strategically, they can figure out how to structure you in the future so you can maybe move towards being passive and then eventually get there if that's what you that's what your goal needs to be. So that's one. I think on the passive side, I know we were I, I know your focus is real estate, but I actually want to put a different angle towards it. I think what we're looking after is, we're looking after maximizing depreciation through passive investments because, you know, car washes. Is car wash a real estate business? One could argue, but it also is operations. It spits out a lot of depreciation. Right. Your ATM businesses. Now, one could argue they're all real estate, but people don't think them as real estate businesses. So what we're saying is when you're listening to this podcast, think about investments that can throw you depreciation that you can use to offset your active income. That's the recipe, right? That's right. like the formula that we want to do. That's a framework, uh, th- a thinking framework that you want to continue using. So when we talk about now passive losses, how can somebody, because the passive losses can only offset passive income, how can you convert that? How can you how can you cross the chasm and start offsetting your non-passive income? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, with the tax code, we go back to um, what is considered a passive activity, right? It's going to be all rental activities are passive by default. Like that's already passive no matter how much time you put into that. And I'll get into the exception in just one second. Yeah. And then you have the business activities kind of like what we we're talking about before. So if you have a business activity and you have that business activity that's generating losses, like say that car wash or Perhaps you're actually running an ATM business mm -hmm. where you're actually like the operator, right? Or, or perhaps like a hotel or like short-term rentals actually fall into this category. If you have a short-term rental property, like a vacation property that has an average period of customer use of seven days or less, it's a business, right? It's still real estate, but it's now considered a business. And if you're materially participating by meeting one of those tests I met, mentioned before, now those losses could be non-passive. So that's Got one way to do it. Bus materially participating in businesses. Now when it comes to real estate, things get a little bit more challenging. Uh, when you have a real estate uh, business, if you're a high income earner, which I, I know a lot of the listeners here are, the the only real way to do it or practical way to do it is by qualifying as what they call a real estate professional. Mm -hmm. Now to qualify as a real estate professional, you need to spend seven more than 750 hours and more than half of your total working time in a real property trader business. Yep. So you effectively have to I always say it's not quite, but you have to be working full-time in real estate effectively. And uh, that's how you qualify as a real estate professional. Now, um, it's been proven, and a lot of people try, hundreds of tax court cases, almost impossible to qualify as a real estate professional if you have a full-time job. Right. But uh, the good news is, is that if you're married, file a joint, uh, file a joint tax return, that your spouse can qualify as a real estate professional. And if your spouse qualifies as a real estate professional, well, now be, you're both considered real estate professionals effectively for tax purposes. So, so for all the single people go get married. Right, right, right. No, <laughs> it's, hey, yeah, no, it's, it's not bad advice. Well, we've, actually, we've actually had people get married for that strategy. I've seen it. I was just joking. That's that's interesting. Uh, I've, oh. I've seen, so we, uh, anecdote, uh, you know, we were on a tax call once with somebody, they come back for their next call and they say, we got married. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, you give them tax <laughs> advice, they come back and they're married. And so, but no, seriously, uh, it's been done before. So, so let's talk about that. So I think you, uh, so, so the holy grail here seems to be that if you can qualify as a real estate professional, a lot of the things get unlocked for you, right? At least from the tax, tax within the tax savings world. So now yeah. what we're saying is that you don't have to worry about converting your businesses to uh, to passive if you want to do great. But what you're saying is you're not focusing really on generating, maximizing your passive losses. And just because you have the real estate professional and, and the losses doesn't, the passive loss doesn't necessarily have to be coming from real estate. It could be coming from any activity, any yeah, businesses. Yeah, let me clarify. Let me let me clarify that. Um, right. So the passive losses when you're a real estate professional only help you offset, only turn your rental activities non-passive. To be just to be clear, your so there's two buckets, right? You in passive activities, you have your businesses, and then you have your your real estate. If you qualify as a real estate professional, your your rental real estate is not passive. Your businesses still have to follow those. Got it. Correct. 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 No, I, th I think that makes sense. So now, now how do how does the Next, next big question. I know it was a leading, leading. You led me to there. What is a real estate professional? How do you? Be, how does one become one? Yeah. So um, basically, a real estate professional. You don't need a real estate license. Uh, contrary to popular, some some people's understanding of it, you don't need it. You have to work in. There's eleven real property trades or businesses. There's uh, construction, reconstruction, brokerage, leasing, property management, uh, development, redevelopment, 
rental uh, rental activities and, and management. I might be missing one there, but mm-hmm. uh, there's there's eleven real property trades or businesses. And if you're working in one of those businesses and you have more than a five percent interest in the business, so mm-hmm. you know if you if you're if you have a job working at uh, say a real estate brokerage and you're on a W two, that's not going to help you. So you have to own at least a five percent interest in one of those businesses, and that's how you can get to that seven hundred fifty. And more than half the time. Let's now. let's let's talk about that for a second. I want to make sure I, there's no confusion there. So let's say I have a friend who has a construction business, and I'm 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 seven percent partner in that business, but I also have a job at Apple, full time job. Do I qualify as a real estate professional, or do I not? So you have a seven percent interest in your friend's business, a real estate business. Well, then it comes down to: Are you spending more than seven hundred fifty hours and more than half your total working time in that business? Um, if you have a job at Apple, I don't know what the job requirement, the hours are at Apple, but I'd have to imagine, just from my experience, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I use Apple as an example because a lot of the listener base is working at uh, one of these big companies, so they have they're right. working more than eight to ten hours a day, um, right? If not more. Okay. Yeah. So, so you you work. So let's talk about that soon. Can anyone become a real estate professional if they don't have a W-2? Could anybody? Yeah. If, theoretically, if you meet that, those two requirements, 750 hours and more than half your total work time in a real property trader business, you could become a real estate professional. So how does one become one? So let's, I'll, I'll throw a hypothetical situation because it, I, I encounter that a lot from my investors. Um, so I know exactly, I want to hear it from a CPA perspective. I don't want to tell them my answer. I have an investor who has one rental property of that he self-manages. There's no property manager anymore. Can th- and this person just lost his job seven months ago. So arguably, right. one can say that he w- he was only employed half the year, right? Okay. So which is the remaining half the year is empty. So uh, is that can that person qualify to be a real professional now? Because he only they has could. one rental property. They could. They could. So there's there's uh, tax. It's possible. So there's tax court cases substantiating people qualifying with only one rental property. But mm-hmm. uh, the question is how much work is there involved like to get to 750 hours credibly in front of the irs and task courts are you renovating that property is it a multi-family property where sure. there's 20 30 units where there's substantial amounts of maintenance that you have to you know upkeep and you know, leasing activities that you're involved in um, so it, it really depends if you just have one single family rental property you bought and there's not that much work that goes into it it's going to be extremely challenging hard. to yeah. it, it's extremely hard to do it but it, it is possible with one property you know so one way to get there is you buy a rental property that does need substantial amounts of renovations and you actually go and either do the renovations yourself and we've seen that happen or you're like so significantly involved in the renovation process that you actually end up getting to that 750 hour threshold again easier said than none it's but it's possible Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, I think that 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 really is. So, so really, it's an hours test, correct? It's not. It's not. Even if you have a partnership uh, in some businesses, you still have to spend hours, right? Right. So let me right. let me throw another example because uh, case studies work the best. There's somebody who has no job right now, but they lost a job on December 31st. Let's. Uh, it's a worst time to lose a job, but they did. So January still January 1st till next December, they had no job. But one of their friends gave them five seven percent interest in the business. Um, okay. This person doesn't necessarily need to work in the business. Can they qualify for rep? If they they own five seven percent, but they're not working in the business, no, unfortunately not. You have to you have to you have to put in the work. You have to put in the hours, and the hours have to be on activities that are material to the business's operations. So, yeah, if if you're 
if you're looking, for, there's no free pass with the real estate professional status. In order to qualify, you need to time in, or you're gonna, we're gonna almost guarantee to lose the audit. I mean, there's like 500 task court cases on this, and uh, if if you're not putting, if you're trying to skirt the rules, uh, they're go, they're gonna, they're gonna get you. So yeah, I think that makes sense. So. I, I've definitely heard that because I know a lot of doctors have tried to do that where they just go by a single family and then they convert then they go yeah. get real estate professional status. Yeah. Well, you know, something that's really interesting, section 469, which is the past activity rules that was passed back in 1986, the Tax Reform Act, was actually put in place to prohibit highly compensated individuals, mm-hmm. specifically doctors and lawyers were like, you know, prime targets. They're all doing that. We're all doing this, and that's exactly what they prohibited. And it's really funny because then, look, I, I love doctors. You know, I have nothing wrong, yeah. but we see them still trying to do this to this day, which is wow. it just it, it's very interesting when you know the history of it, and like you right. see the same thing happening. It's like, yeah, that's exactly why they put this in place. I think this is this is really important. This is why it's really important to work with a professional in the stands, right? Because, and I know that IRS forms fairly well. It's really just a check in the box. You check you check a box on the IRS forms and you become a real estate professional. So it's very easy to claim one. Right. The claiming is never a hard thing. I think what, we're, what, what Thomas is saying is, really, if you were to be audited, and chances are all of us will be at some point, if you were audited, then can you substantiate, hopefully you never get audited, but if you do, can you substantiate that in the court of law against in front of right. the IRS saying that this is why I claimed it? Because Thomas, what is the penalty of you claimed it but you didn't qualify. So, so one thing to re- so oftentimes these audits don't come that year. They come several years down the line. Sometimes two or three years or more down the line, depending on the cases. And uh, by that time, if you do lose that audit, you're going to have owe the IRS back taxes, plus penalties, plus interest, and that all adds up. It could be substantial. So you don't want to catch yourself in that situation, especially today. Yeah, we're recording this at the tail end of 2023 here. Interest rates on the IRS are substantial now. It's not like it was two or three years ago where you're paying the IRS 3% interest. Now it's like, I believe it's around 8%. So it's, you're paying back the taxes you should have, you you would have paid had you not claimed the real estate professional status on top of penalties, on top of interest. And depending on how long down the line that is, it could be, you know, it's going to be a substantial sum of money. Yeah, so you have to be very careful. I think real estate professional, as I tell all of my investors, it's a very powerful strategy, but you need to work with a professional to make sure you qualify one and you can substantiate it. And they'll they'll help you with how to do that. I know you guys, Thomas, you have so much material online to basically tell people. You actually do seminars and webinars to tell the power of the rep and what not to do. And what what and there's so much there's so much that you guys have pushed. So thank you again for doing that. So Thomas, we can go on and on, man. I love this. I'm a tax man, as I said. We can go on and on. I have several questions in my head right now. We're going to actually pause because I know you have a hard stop as well. And uh, I want to respect that. So jumping towards the next part of our session here, Thomas, as in there's a 20, 25-year-old Thomas listening to this show somewhere in the world, uh, maybe in the US. What's one insight you can give that person that can alter the trajectory of their life for good? Uh, Yeah. I would say um, don't go the safe path, right? Uh, just if you if you want to go into business, jump into business. You have plenty of time to do it. I mean, if I had to go back and tell myself, I would not have went to college. Uh, I would have probably just jumped right into the real estate game right away <laughs> and yeah. became an agent, learned all. If you would have became an agent, right? You would learn so much about business, marketing, salesmanship. That's going to set you up for the rest of your 
your, your business career, but not only that, you're going to understand the real estate game and you could invest in real estate a lot more intelligently and build your wealth that much faster. So if I had to go back in time, I would tell myself not to go to college. And especially if it was today, I definitely would not go to college. There's so many other ways that you can get education. And that's just me, right? Like a, a college is great if you're if for certain professions, right? If you're going to go into law, you're become a doctor, then college is the Correct. way. If you go into the business, that, that's what I would tell myself. Love that. Love that. And uh, I think I think you lived that life. So it's not like you didn't. Uh, that's that's what led you to this. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thomas, uh, the next question or the last question predominantly is also going to be more around, as you reflect on a lot of your investors that you're working with, a lot of other people that you've interacted with, where do you feel there's a gap in humanity there that uh, we should strive as a community to close that gap in the next few years, next few decades, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just, that's a good question. I think there's a big gap in, yeah, it's such a good question. It's a thought-provoking question. I, I think there's there's a gap in, in, in education. I think pri- primarily, I think there's a big gap in a lot of people, and this might be cliche, are still living that old world mentality. Like we're now, in, we're going to 2024, we're, in the information age, almost to the point where we're going to the age where we have AI and artificial intelligence. Like you don't need, almost going back to what I said before, you don't need to go to college, right? There's so many different ways you could transition. So I think just bringing people from an education standpoint into, you know, revamping the education system uh, to bring people into a more modern world, the world we live in today, not the world we lived in a hundred years ago, is probably the biggest gap that just, you know, immediately comes to mind. No, makes sense. Makes sense, Thomas. I, I think I, I can actually attest to that because I'm a product of education. I wouldn't be talking to you if if my mom and dad, growing up in India, didn't put a lot of emphasis on the education. That really got me through. Yeah. But now with the stage I'm in, I'm I'm at a different. I have a different platform than my parents had. Is the current education system going to serve us? Right. Uh, serve my kids because they're not start. Their starting point is definitely different than my starting. point. So right. while it helped me, and I still believe that's needed uh, for different platforms, is, is it going to help us? Uh, so thank you for sharing that, Thomas. Last question, buddy. A lot of great insights. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about you, your business, where can they learn that? Yeah. So I mean, if you want to get in touch with me, the best place would go would be to go to thomascastelli.com slash links. I have all my social links there. But if, you, if you're looking for you know, real estate uh, resources, you want to learn how to reduce taxes, we do have a community which you could join and get access to a lot of the strategies and stuff we talked about here in a lot more in depth. Uh, and you could learn more about that at www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders, uh, where you get a trial to the community and you could start learning about these things for yourself. Awesome. Well, uh, I would definitely encourage the listeners to take advantage of that, especially it's a free trial. Um, you'll probably learn something in the free trial. If not, if, and yeah. if you want to stick and join, I definitely, uh, Tom, Tom and his team will take care, uh, take good care of you. Thomas, again, thank you, buddy, for this conversation. Really appreciate it. A lot of insight, a lot of good conversations, a lot of your, I know you, you didn't hold anything back. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.